If you have a Bible with you, open to Luke 17, 11 through 19. If you're borrowing a Bible that we, we have provided, and, uh, it's on page 749, page 749, Luke 17, 11 through 19. We have been looking at Luke 15 through 18, which is called, everyone with me, the overlooked Jesus. We got halfway in, so most of us should be able to chant that by now. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as Jesus entered a village, he was met by ten lepers, who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving thanks to him. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner. And Jesus said to the man, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Pray with me if you would. Lord, you're, you say in your word that your, your word is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. So God, we pray that your word would light a way for us this morning. Uh, light the way for us to be able to know you better, to follow you better, to please you and glorify you better, Lord. Um, help us, Lord. We are in need of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus, let's give you a quick overview, was coming from the far north, from Galilee, traveling down south through Samaria, and then finally to Jerusalem, his final destination, and to the cross. And along the way, these ten lepers cry out to him. Leprosy was a very, uh, it was a disease of the skin. It was incurable. And it was very obvious if you had it. Your skin would turn uh, white, like ash. And basically, your skin would begin to flake off. Right? And uh, that's putting it mildly. Flake off. That's for those of you who had Dunkin' Donuts this morning. But according to Leviticus 13, a leprous person, so one of these, any of these ten men, had to live alone totally removed and outside the community. Which means he or she most likely lived away from their very family their entire lives. So these ten men had an obvious motivation, right? To to seek out a faith healer. Right? To meet their needs. And they were substantial. So Jesus sends them to a priest. Before they're healed... Before they're even healed, sends them to a priest. Because a temple priest's job, one of his jobs according to Leviticus 14, was to declare a person who was unclean and declare them clean. It's one of his jobs. Right? And it was for the good of the community. All of God's laws for our good, including this one. So, they go. They go to the temple, go to the priest. Still leprous. 
right? Still with this awful, obvious disease. I was trying to think of, just imagine this. Imagine the kind of substantial faith this would have required for them to do this. Imagine the walk as they went to the temple, still with leprosy, still unclean, still not allowed to get near that temple. It would be, it would be almost like Jesus asking you to withdraw money from a bank, from your bank account. Uh, but, to, but first to obey him by putting on this ski mask, right? As you're walking to the bank, you're like, what's going to happen? Oh my gosh, I got to withdraw money. I got a ski mask on. Ah, right? Or, or, or imagine being Bic Razor bald. I mean like bald, bald, all right? And uh, this is going to happen to me uh, sooner or later. So this is my final destiny. I realize this. You're going Bic Razor bald, going into town as a local barber shop right? For a haircut. Because Jesus told me to. And you're on the way. The local shop. This is the kind of faith it took for these men to walk to the temple. Still for leprosy. They risked social humiliation. Not to mention the legal ramifications were huge. But each had real needs. I mean, not just physical needs, but social needs, right? They were cast out of the community. Emotional needs. Connectedness with other people. Real needs that were met. But only one returns to Jesus. And we're going to get back to him as Jesus' focus is elsewhere. Not on the man who returns, at least at first. Even when this man comes back and worships at Jesus' feet, his focus is on the other nine, at least at first. His focus is on the other nine. He says, we're not ten cleansed. What happened? What, where are the other nine? He says in verse 17. Now at first glance, Jesus' response seems a bit puzzling to me. Right? I mean, why does he harp? Why does he harp so much on these other nine? Didn't they demonstrate some serious faith by walking to this temple before even being healed? And didn't they, didn't they technically obey what Jesus asked them to do? And yet, it's the first thing Jesus says when he sees this one man come back to him. I think this passage bears a strong resemblance to what we saw in the parables of Luke 15, if you were here with us during that time, where Jesus speaks of the righteous and sinners. All throughout Luke 15, he's addressing the righteous and sinners. Sinners he wants to save, and righteous who are not hearing his word. Remember this? And it's not so much that the righteous, or these other nine in this story, were wrong... It's not so much that they were wrong, they just don't get it. You see that? When, when it comes to encountering the Messiah, the Savior of the world, they just don't get it. They miss the point. Uh, my youngest son, Gage, uh, we discipline him, discipline him a lot, but on a recent occasion of disciplining him, uh, well, his, his latest response to these kinds of disciplines has been revenge. 
Right? But, I mean, this is a revenge in his own mind. The kid is almost, you know, between three and four. So it's a revenge in his own mind. Basically, his revenge is, after being disciplined, sitting there, thinking for a moment, and saying, hmm, I'm going to set a trap on you. And that's what he does. We discipline him, and he determines he's going to set a trap on us, which means he's going over to a box of rubber bands that we have, and uh, basically putting them on a pole. And that's going to somehow trap us. That is his revenge on us. That's what he does. It's, it's brilliant. I love it. But uh, it makes me laugh every time. It's hard to discipline him. He's very funny. But anyway, he knows, even at his age, he, he does know, and kids can know this at this age, that Jesus' death means that Jesus can forgive and wipe away the big no. The big no that's in all of our hearts. All right, he knows this. Talk about a lot. And so I talked to him in this recent occasion of discipline. I talked to him in kids speak about how forgiveness, being forgiven by Jesus, can help us forgive others. Alright, so now because we sat down and talked about this, and he actually listened for the one minute he could pay attention, and he heard Jesus in there, and, and, and right now he loves anything with Jesus in it. The result was he didn't set a trap. Right? Didn't set a trap and take revenge on his dad. But he also didn't get it. That makes sense? The result was what we all wanted, not taking revenge, but, but he also didn't get forgiveness. He didn't get that part of it really. These lepers have needs needs met by Jesus. And they even show some faith, some serious faith, but they don't quite get it. They don't quite get who they just encountered. Just like some of us, you may show some faith in technically obeying. In technically obeying so that you and God will be cool, right? So we'll be good. Me and Jesus. But you still don't get it. You don't yet get it. That's okay. There's hope for us, and I think it's found here in this passage this morning. The title of today's sermon is Fighting a Can-I-Can't-I Faith. Fighting a Can-I-Can't-I Kind of Faith. I often wonder, at that age-old statement of comfort uttered in classrooms, doctor's offices, Bible studies across the world, that statement... There are no stupid questions. You heard this before, right? There are no dumb questions. Or there are no wrong questions. I often wonder about this. I, have you guys seen these uh, posters? They're these motivational posters. They, feed, they have these big black borders on them. And they often feature like a, a, a great picture of a man running past a waterfall. Right? And they say something like, Perseverance. You too can run all the way to a waterfall. Something like that, right? You've seen these? There's a great website that kind of makes fun of these, all right? Uh, and and those, those poses are fine. But there's a great website that makes fun of these called despair.com. You may have seen it before. And I found a photo about this issue of asking uh, the wrong question or a stupid question. Um, and I don't necessarily endorse this. I just want to show it to you. So it says this. It says, cluelessness. There are no stupid questions, but there are a lot of inquisitive idiots. All right, which I just, I'll let you, 
I'll let you draw your own conclusions on the truth of that. Again, I'm not endorsing this for the sake of the sermon. I just thought it was funny. When I was having lunch with a couple recently who's dating, and um, they had some questions about relationships. Good questions. And they along the way in talking, they mentioned they had a number of Christian friends who were not yet married, but they've heard them ask the question, can I live with someone? Can't I live with someone of the opposite gender? And, you know, the, when the Bible doesn't talk about it, like, specifically. Can I live with someone of the opposite gender? And, and we started talking, and then, you know, they just sort of, in a very genuine, unassuming, just humble manner, said this. They said, you know, we, we just sort of figured that we should ask, what would God be most honored by with what we do? What would God be most, that's the question we should ask. And I was like, yes! Yes! You know, as a pastor, when you have these conversations, it's beautiful. Because your, your work, I was you know, like, my work here is done. Right? Unless I got to pay for the check, which I'm hoping I don't. Alright? Please. <laughs> so many know that, know that's true with me. But um, my work here is done. And God admit it. It was a great response. Because when it comes to a number of life's choices, a number of life's choices, we often try to technically obey so that Jesus will meet our needs. Right? So Jesus and I will be alright. We technically obey. So we ask questions like, can I blank? Can't I have this? Must I do this? Am I allowed to this? You know what I'm talking about? And in one sense, these are good questions because we, we need to know what Jesus and, and what the rest of the New Testament commands and forbids. Right? We need to know those things. But, if this is the question that haunts or plagues you, or if this is really your only question, then friends, you're asking the wrong question. You don't quite get it yet. You're busy drawing lines in the sand. Busy seeing how much you can kind of get away with. While the Lord of the universe and your salvation wants to be greatly glorified. He wants the glory, the honor, and the majesty. I want to give you some examples of these kinds of questions. Of technical obedience. It goes so I'm going to give you eight examples or more. I'm just going to roll through these. All right? It goes something like this. I mentioned one. Can I live with someone before marriage? Can't I drink alcohol? And am I allowed to drink this much? Right? That's a good example of, right? Like drawing a line in the sand. Jesus, it's like, if I give you this much, God will be pleased. I'm not required to tithe, am I? Must I be part of a church? Must I do spiritual disciplines like, you know, prayer, studying God's word, fasting, confession? Do I have to do those things? Can't I do blank if I'm, <laughs> if I'm technically following company and government policy? Right? Can't I spend my leisure time doing whatever I want? Here's the last one. Can't I watch 
a show or a movie with some language or a brief revelation of excessive skin. Right? These are some examples where we get so fixated on that question, the can't I, can I question. And if that's your only question, when it comes to obeying Jesus, friends, we're missing the point. Now some of these, I just mentioned, are truly gray areas. And some of them are very dark gray. I mean, uh, you know, like, in, like charcoal, right? Uh, there's a good answer for each one. But some of them are gray areas, even in Scripture. Drinking, for instance. I would never say that drinking in and of itself is wrong or sinful. Nor does drinking in itself make you a second class Christian. I like what Pastor uh, John Piper says, himself a Southern Baptist pastor in Minnesota. He says, I choose not to drink, but I would die for the right of my brother or sister to do so. I would die for the right of my brother and sister to do so. That's a pretty, that's like a pretty bold statement when it comes to, uh, you know, alcohol and proof, right? But, once you start going down the road of elevating a matter of freedom, right, something that the Bible seems to maybe permit in certain circumstances, once you elevate something that's a matter of freedom to a requirement to please God, Friends, that's what's called good old-fashioned legalism, which is deadly for the Christian faith. Right? Oh, that's another sermon, though. Okay. I won't stay too long on that, but I'll just say this. The question ought to be in this kind of situations, how can I most glorify God? That's the question we should ask. How can I most glorify God in this situation, this decision? If you're among friends who know you, aren't going to be totally freaked out, are you drinking? And your conscience allows, you may legitimately determine it's glorifying to God to have a glass of wine or a Heineken with some friends. Alright? But enough on that. This can't I, or can I, can't I faith. How do we end up here? How do we get to the place in our lives with Jesus where this is our, our crucial question? I'm going to give you a couple reasons. There's probably many. Two I thought of. One, battered by sin, hurts, and disappointments, we've grown sort of uh, content to make a simple exchange. Simple exchange with, with the Lord. Take a little grace to meet my needs in exchange for a technical can I, can't I obedience. God, you forgive me. You help me, save me, and, and I will technically obey you. And that's hard. I, I, I have been there. You know, things happen in life. It gets hard to follow God or just tired. God, if I just do this, will you please give me your grace? Secondly, how do we end up here? We are deceived into believing that other lovers, other lover, uh, lovers will satisfy our desires. Other things in the world will satisfy our deepest longings. And so, if you're in this camp, many of us in this situation aim for both. How can I both hold on to this, this love or this pleasure at all costs, while also making sure I hold on to Jesus at all costs? 
And we fight with that. Again, it's that question of how can I, how can I get away with this pleasure I really, really want, but also live and love Jesus. So you see the problem. see the dilemma and hopefully the state of our hearts in this. How do we fight against it? How do we fight against this can I, can't I kind of faith so we can genuinely even eagerly ask the right question, which is how can I most glorify God? Well, in a nutshell, here's how we do it. In a nutshell, fight against a can I, can't I faith by seeking lasting pleasure and noticing grace. You fight against it by seeking a lasting pleasure and noticing those pleasures in our everyday life. Noticing God's grace in our everyday life. Back to the, uh, the passage we're reading. This one Samaritan. Verses, look, at, look with me at him again. Verse 15 and 16. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back. Listen to this description. He turned back. Probably went a long way, you know, ignoring family momentarily, ignoring friends momentarily, all these opportunities he had because he saw the Messiah. He knew this man was something special. So he, he turned back, praised God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet. I mean, he humbled himself because he loved Jesus. He saw this man is the man in whom I will find lasting pleasure. There's a debate on this, this, this passage based on verse 19, which says, when Jesus says to this man at the end of the story, go your way, your faith has made you well. The debate is, made you well. Uh, the, the Greek word is sozo. It can mean uh, a physical healing or it can mean actual salvation. Or both. And in this case, I would argue it means at least salvation or both. Why? Because the other nine have had this deep need in their lives met, right? They've all been healed. And each makes a decision. Okay, I've been healed by Jesus. Whatever it is, whatever they do, they make a decision to do their own thing, right? To go my own way, to go to my own family, go back to my own village. Only one looks away from that me and my life me and my of life, and forsakes all other cares and concerns to look towards God and worship at the feet of Jesus. Only one gets it in this story and responds to God's work of grace with radical gratitude. Right? Others had faith to be healed by Jesus, but only one man who gets it had the kind of faith to be saved by Jesus. You see that? This man came to worship the living God in Jesus Christ. And my question for us this morning is, is, do we get it? Do you get it? Have you experienced this kind of passionate faith? Running to Jesus at all costs. Worshiping his feet. I want to give you some pictures of such persons, okay? Who had this kind of passionate faith. We see them throughout scripture. One is in Matthew 26, 6-13. You may know this story. Put it up there. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. 
And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. See this? She knows that Jesus is the Son of God, so she goes and she worships him. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done in my name will be told. There will always be people who question you. The disciples question this woman. They will question, if she was really a Christian, wouldn't she give that money to Haiti? The relief in Haiti? Or, if he was really a Christian, wouldn't he stop hanging out with those people? That, those, that riffraff? You know, those sinners? If she were really a Christian, she wouldn't be so showy about her faith. Right? There will always be questions for people who are going with passionate faith to Jesus Christ. If you've ever gotten it, though, if you've ever gone from mentally, mentally agreeing that Jesus is God to trusting your very life to Him, trusting your very life to Him, your singular, almost obsessive concern is how do I get to Jesus and worship at His feet? That's your concern. Not these other things. Another example. We're uh, rereading the Gospel of John. I've been rereading the Gospel of John recently for our, our Taste of John Bible study we've been doing at our house on Wednesday nights. And what I've been most struck by rereading it this time around is the passionate faith of people who get it. People who get Jesus. Alright, so I want to give you a few of those. Like Mary... Uh, the, the sister of Lazarus, upon hearing that Jesus is in town, got up quickly and immediately goes to him. John eleven twenty nine. Mary of Magdala, when Jesus calls her name near his tomb, clings to him. That's the language used there. John twenty seventeen. Peter and John, hearing that Jesus' tomb is empty, they run to it. They race to the tomb. And John even describes that he actually beats Peter there. They have a race that goes so fast. They just make a direct sprint. In John 20, when he saw the risen Jesus on shore, Peter from his boat jumps in the water nearly naked and swims to shore to see Jesus. This is a picture, friends, of people who forsook all else and just cared about worshiping the feet of Jesus. They got it. Jumping, running, clinging, and quickly going. These are people who get it. I do want to pause here and say, look, I, I, I don't want to... The point is, I don't want to sit up here, stand up here, and try to restrict or, or even negate your pleasures in life. The pleasures you have in life, while, while you may try to hang on... To a can I, can't I faith. I don't want to restrict your pleasures. Rather, I want to hold out to you a richer, grander, more limitlessly satisfying pleasure. That's what I want to hand out to you. 
That's what Jesus wants to hand out to us, really. Because it's a pleasure that's only found in Jesus Christ. Do you see that? It, it's a greater pleasure, Jesus. It truly, truly is. It's not just preacher words. Do we have, uh, do we have any... Um, do you have any university grads in here who majored in something practical like uh, economics, marketing, or accounting? Raise your hands. You, 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 you major something practical. Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. You major something practical. What about other practical things like the sciences? Biology, anatomy, pre-med, anything like that out there? Okay. There's a few of those. So, who among you was just happy to be in college and like me, majored in something completely impractical like history or English literature? Anyone? Yes. All right. Yeah, that's us. We love that. I remember enduring my impracticality in college. Um, and I was just happy to be there, by the way. Very fortunate to just be in college. And I remember people making fun of us. Yeah, English literature people, history people. I remember one joke. They said, what's the difference between a pizza? What's the difference between a pizza and an English major? Anyone know? A pizza can feed a family of four. Hey, oh, that's right. But really, the joke's on them because my family is fed and they don't eat pizza because they can't have that kind of food because it has gluten in it. So, <laughs> you know, look, look who's on top now. <laughs> but I, <laughs> I say this because I want to use, for the first time that I can remember in a sermon in a long time, I want to use my English literature degree today. I'm going to tell you about one of my favorite poets by the name of John Donne. John Donne busted rhymes back in the early 17th century. John Donne grew up in an an old Catholic family. And he would no doubt have called himself a Christian. And as he grew older, he got involved in overseas politics and had these cushy jobs overseas. And he began to write poetry during this time. And, And let me tell you, friends, he wrote some steamy stuff. I mean, stuff that if Fabio was around, he'd be on the cover of his book of poetry, all right? Steamy things. Like, like for instance, here's one of the titles. Elegy 19, To His Mistress Going to Bed. All right, and this is 17th century, all right? I thought about reading it in church, read it. It was inappropriate, all right? I mean, it, it, was, it, was, this is, it was inappropriate for daytime HBO, all right? Or really even last month's Batabanu Festival. I would not have got a reading there either. Alright. Such was the passion of John Tunn's poetry. <laughs> this man had a turning point in his life, though. He began to experience hardship. He was thrown in prison after falling out of favor with his father-in-law. Alright. It's pretty harsh. And after that, he has 10 children with his wife, Anne. I'll let you describe which is the harder hardship, the prison or the 10 children, right? So his kids, my gosh. But he began to trust his life to Christ during this period. Eventually, he even became the pastor, what was known then as the rector of St. Paul's Cathedral for the last 10 years of his life. He continues during this time to write poetry as well. So I want to read for you this morning a sort of post-conversion poem of his after he came to sort of trust Christ. It's Holy Sonnet 14, he called it. And I want us to notice the passion you can imagine was directed before at this mistress in this other, other poem. 
But his passion doesn't diminish, but rather grows because the object of his passion, this is important, the object of his passion becomes far more pleasurable because he's trusted Jesus. Jesus is the object of his passion. Read, read this with me if you would. Holy Son at 14. Batter my heart, three-person God. For you as, but, as yet but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend, that I may rise and stand, overthrow me and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. I, like a usurped town to another do, labor to admit you, but oh, to no end. Reason, your viceroy, or your help, your viceroy in me should defend, but is captive and proves weak or untrue. Yet dearly I love you and would be loved fain, but am betrothed unto your enemy. Divorce me, untie or break that knot again. Take me to you, imprison me, for I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. This is a 17th century poem about Jesus. Batter my heart. Knock, breathe, shine, enthrall, ravish, imprison me. These are not words of a boring Christian usually come to know Jesus or a, you know, a banal, bland old pastor sitting up here. John Dunn got it. Because God means to enlarge your pleasures, not diminish them. Because he means to be the object of your passion and the eternal source of your pleasure. Do you see that? God, you enthrall me. God, imprison me. I want to be with you. But sin holds me back. Psalm 1611. Psalm 1611, David says this, In your presence, Lord, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Friends, such a passionate faith isn't for the John Dunns of the world, the lepers who've been healed, or the women of questionable character who anoint feet. God intends this for you and for me also. So God, we pray this morning. We pray that you would grow a more passionate faith by helping us find our deepest pleasures experienced in you. God, help us do this by noticing, by becoming alert to grace in every area of our life and ways that you grace us that you show us your love in every area of our life. Help us notice this. We looked last week, Lord, at Ephesians 2. We got to look at grace that's past, that's future, that's present. And so, Lord, help us notice in our lives past grace. For every action and opportunity, your past grace would motivate us. Your past grace being going back to the cross and to our salvation and the deep satisfaction of being forgiven. 
a deep satisfaction of being forgiven again so we can forgive others, so we can love others. Lord God, help us notice future grace for the highs and lows of life. May the beauties of life, Lord, remind us of the greater blessing, the greater beauties to come in being with you forever. And may the lows of life remind us of the lasting relief to come in resting with you eternally. Lord, may we notice in our lives present grace for the mundane in life. Help us to see everything you throw our way in life, everything you throw our way as a gift. When conversations, encounters, and computers that we log on to seem normal, just the everyday stuff, show us how each good and perfect gift of grace comes from you. Lord, help us see these lasting gifts of grace, these lasting pleasures, so that the, the point of our lives and the, the tenor of our Christian life wouldn't be, can't I do this? Can't I do that? Am I allowed to do this? Am I allowed to do that? Lord, so things will be okay with you. But Lord, help us go deeper by noticing these gifts of grace and these lasting pleasures. Help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.